welcome to theories of the third kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts today. There's another host that is joining me, Daniel Sun. Yo, guys. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 106 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours of listening pleasure. So to see this full list of 106 extra Patreon episodes, just go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the Patreon episodes tab, and there will be the entire list for you to look at of all of our past Patreon-exclusive episodes that we've published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is about the food shortage crisis, along with all the food processing plants that have been mysteriously catching on fire. We dove super deep into this and uncovered some very odd and weird things. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you would like to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressured to leave us one if you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoots, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever, whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is a Theories Thursday. So if this is your first time experiencing a Theories Thursday, let me explain to you what it is. Pretty much earlier this week, me and Dan selected our favorite topics for the week. We didn't tell each other about them. We ended up independently researching them. And then today, we're going to take turns telling each other about our favorite topic. And that's pretty much how it goes. And then at the end, we'll, of course, do our on the scene, do shout outs, birthday shout outs, Anyway, so that's how Theories Thursdays go. So, what we have to figure out now is, who goes first? So how we do that is we go to our randomizer, put in Aaron and Dan, and Dan, give me a number between 1 and 10. 5. Give me a number between 1 and 5. 3. All right, 5 minus 3? 2. All right, we're going to randomize it two times. 1, 2. All right, the first person to give their topic is you, Dan, and then it's going to be me. So what do you have for your topic for this week? So for my topic this week, I picked a missing person, actually a missing kid from 36 years ago, Antoinette Cayedito. God damn, 36 years ago? Yep, and it's still unsolved. Damn. All right. Well, I'm interested. I always love me a good mystery, you know? This case was actually really weird to you know, read about. All right, we'll kick it off. Tell us all about this. So first off, I always think it's a good idea to talk about missing persons because put awareness out to help find them. This one happened on April 6, 1986. So just recently, it was the 36th year anniversary of her disappearance. Now, Antoinette was nine years old when she suddenly disappeared from her home located in New Mexico. 
The story that was given was that Antoinette's mother, Penny, had gone out drinking that night with some friends at a local bar, which was a usual occurrence. Now, Antoinette and her younger sisters, Sadie and Wendy, were left at home with the babysitter. Penny got home late that night, and the girls were still, like, up and playing till around 3 a.m. Wait, wait, wait. 3 a.m.? Till 3 a.m. Good lord. Little party animals. Get your ass in bed by 9 o'clock. I mean, you gotta have structure in the home, but whatever, no judgment. Go ahead. Now, Antoinette ended up falling asleep in her mother's bed beside Penny. Well, they end up going to sleep. Penny ends up waking up around 7 a.m., and Antoinette was no longer in the bed. So she assumed that her daughter probably woke up early, left the room. So Penny got up, went around the house, and only saw her other two daughters, Sadie and Wendy. She didn't find Antoinette at all inside the house. So she went outside, was asking neighbors and stuff, like, hey, have you seen my daughter Antoinette? Has she been out here? And of course, the neighbors shook their heads. No, they haven't seen her at all outside today. So the neighbors and her, they started panicking. They started searching the neighborhood, trying to see if they could find any clue to where Antoinette was. As they searched, they didn't find any clues leading to where she could be. So that's when Penny decided to call the authorities. And of course, when you're reporting a missing person, they're always telling you you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can actually report them missing. So I think she had to wait like an extra eight hours before she could actually officially report her daughter missing. I thought it was 24 hours, but that must be for an adult. Must be eight hours for a child. Yeah, I think it's because uh, they went to sleep and last time she saw her or whatever. So, But she had like after she called them, she had to wait an extra eight hours before she could officially report it. Which, I mean, if a kid goes missing, I think that should be like an immediate response, not a. Yeah, it seems a little ridiculous for eight hours, in my opinion. But anyways, that was a different time. You know, that was a long time ago. True. All right, continue on. All right. So once the official report was in, the police started their, you know, investigation. They got a search party together and they were looking around the neighborhood. They expanded their search outwards around the area, but they could not find any clues on where she went. There was no trace of her. The police immediately assumed that this had to be a kidnapping of some sort. As they continued to search and try to find clues in Antoinette's whereabouts, they had no leads, nothing. So after the case went cold, they couldn't find her or anything like that, it wasn't until a year later that they finally got a tip. Some young girl had called the local police station. Now, she didn't dial 911. She actually dialed the local police station's number. And the young girl on the phone kept telling the police officer, saying, I'm Antoinette Cayerito. And she just kept repeating it. And then she told the dispatcher that, you know, I'm in Albuquerque. Once the dispatcher asked where in Albuquerque she was, you heard another voice in the background yell, who said you could use the phone? Which we actually have a clip of that actual police call if you want to listen to that. Heck yeah. Let's go ahead and take a listen to that right now. Who said you could use the phone? That's a really weird accent that guy had. See, when I listen to it, I know everybody, you know, that listens to it says it's a man, but there's a few people that believe that was a woman's voice. 
And I actually believe that was a woman's voice, just a little bit deeper. Yeah, I would have to say the same thing, Dan. I believe that's a woman's voice. I don't know. It just didn't sound deep enough to be a man's, but, you know, could be still. But I actually believe it's a woman's voice. The weird thing to me was Anthonette, if that really was her. And you said instead of her calling 911, she actually called the police station's number. Yes. That's very odd. Now, only reason why I think she would have called that was that she actually saw a missing persons poster of herself. And I guess it had the local number on there. Oh, okay, That makes sense. That's the only thing I could think of. But wouldn't it be easier to just dial 911, though? Yeah, it would be. But hey, when you're in that situation, you know, you aren't thinking straight. So yeah. And she was, let's see, she was nine. Then it was a year later. She might have been 10 by then. You know, it probably doesn't click, I guess. Yeah, when I was 10 years old, I was dumber than a box of rocks. I was dumb as shit. Anyway. Yeah, I did a lot of dumb shit. All right, so what happens next? All right, so the police, you know, they had that call. And at first they decided, you know, like, that had to be some prank of some sort. But they decided to play that recording of that call to Penny, Antoinette's mother. As they played it to her, they could tell that, you know, this was her child. They even had a statement from Penny when she was listening to it which said, I listened to that tape over and over and over, and just by the way she says her last name, the way she screamed, sent chills all over my body, a mother knows, and I know that was her. That's what her mother said. Damn. That's sad. To hear that and then hear your child screaming, mm. I mean... It's horrible. It is. Now, they had that phone call happen. You figured that would have gave them a big lead. It didn't give them anything. They had nothing to go on. All they knew was Albuquerque. That was it. And they had no idea who the other person was on the phone that, you know, yelled at him like, hey, who said you could use the phone? So the case went cold again till 1991 when a waitress in Carson City, Nevada, claimed that she had seen a teenage girl matching Anthony's description come into the restaurant that she was working with an odd looking couple. The waitress stated that this mysterious teenage girl kept knocking her utensils off the table. She's like, damn, what's wrong with this bitch knocking her shit down on the ground all the time? God damn. Exactly. Yeah, she kept knocking him down, so she had to keep going over there, giving her new ones or cleaning off the old one. And at one point, the teenage girl grabbed the waitress's hand and just looked at her with this, you know, sad look and then just let go like it was an accident that she didn't mean to grab her hand. Well, after the couple and the teenage girl left, the waitress went to the table to, you know, clean off the table. And as she went to pick up the plate that the girl was using, Hidden underneath the plate, it was a napkin, and on that napkin was a note that said, Help me. Call police. By the time the waitress realized something was wrong, they were long gone. Did the waitress call the police? She called the police, told them and all that, but that didn't lead to anything, because they were already gone. She didn't know what they were driving or anything. Damn. Now, with this happening, this, I guess, for some reason, got the younger sister, Wendy, which I think she was about five at the time, she ended up coming forward and saying that she remembered what happened that night. Five at the time of the abduction or five at the time of whenever the waitress called? Of the abduction. Okay, so she would have been, what, 10? So 86, 91, 5, 10. Yeah, she would have been 10 by then. Okay, so five years later, she magically remembers something. I wouldn't say magically. Well, she says why later on. So, 
Wendy said that she remembered Antoinette getting up in the middle of the night to answer a knock on the door. Wendy said she heard a man's voice say, hey, it's Uncle Joe. And this was the night that Antoinette disappeared, right? That we're talking about? Yes. Okay. Then when Antoinette opened the door, two unidentified men that they have never seen before grabbed Antoinette and carried her to a brown van and drove off. When asked why this information was never stated before, Wendy said she just didn't want to upset her mother any more than she was. You figured, like, that type of information, is, especially as a kid, you'd want to say something, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and then keep it for five years, but I don't know. Well, the police heard the story, and they weren't really sure whether to believe it or not. Because they're just like, you know, she held on to this for five years, and she was five at the time. Do we really go off of what she says? So that actually kind of confused them during the case. So they didn't know whether what to believe or not. So, of course, you know, they tried searching for a brown van and stuff and didn't find anything. The police decided to go ahead and, you know, keep investigating Wendy's account of what happened and decided to question their uncle, which his name was Uncle Joe. But he came out clean. He, I guess, had an alibi and everything that he was not involved. So they dropped him as a suspect. So they decided to start going along the I guess the family, to find out if anybody else knew anything. Next, they decided to question the girl's father, Larry Estrada, which he soon was dropped off the list of suspects because he wasn't around when it happened. And then they found out that there was two sex offenders in the area. So they decided to question them. And that led them to nothing. So it's like nothing that they, you know, come across actually gives them any leads to the disappearance of Antoinette. But this is where it starts to get a little weird. They already questioned the father, the uncle. Well, they decided to question the mother, Penny. They come to find out she had failed a lie detector test when they were questioning her about details of her daughter's disappearance. What? Yeah, and that's not all. Uh-oh. And just prior to Antoinette going missing, Penny was able to purchase a brand new sports car, which her little family... They weren't rich. They didn't have a lot of money. Considering where they lived, people said that that was where, you know, it's a poor area. So they were, you know, just, just making it by. So where would she get the money to go out and buy this brand new sports car? Don't tell me she sold her child for a car. We don't know. Oh, God. And of course, you know, Penny had the habit of going out and partying all the time. So this made, you know, Penny even more of a suspect. And the police knew that she knew something more than what she had told them, and she was covering for something, which she never said anything at all, even to the day she passed away. In April of 1999, the police tried to make it to the hospital before she passed away to try to get a deathbed confession, but she passed away before they got there. Imagine her really being innocent and having nothing to do with her child disappearing. And you're sitting there on your deathbed and your entire life, well, not your entire life, but the majority of it, you were haunted by wondering, where did your child go to? Where is she at? Your entire life. And finally, in, in your moments of being almost at peace, here comes the police. <laughs> Do you confess to your child missing? It's got to suck if you're truly innocent. From what I heard, I couldn't find any more evidence on it myself though but she supposedly failed more than one lie detector test so what do you personally think happened you think she sold her kid for a sports car uh i'm not sure yet but 
I do got some more information. Oh, okay. Well, let's hear it. So after Antoinette went missing, her mom did go to a Navajo medicine woman because they were part Navajo, part Italian. The Navajo medicine woman did a ceremony to contact the spirit of a missing person. From after doing the ceremony, the information that they gathered on Antoinette was that she was still alive and she may have had a child by now, but she is still being held against her will somewhere in Southwest United States. So with hearing that, Antoinette's mom, Penny, was just like, you know, I'm upset that she was kidnapped or whatever, but I'm happy that she's alive and hopefully they're taking good care of her at least. And I'm just like, eh, I mean, I guess that's good, but kind of weird. Yeah, it is. Then three years after Antoinette actually went missing, her aunt Louisa Estrada, Larry Estrada's sister, actually disappeared from her home for about a month. But they ended up finding her in uh, Juarez, and she was returned home. And for some reason, the police was trying to think that Antoinette's disappearance and the aunt's disappearance had a connection for a while there. Did she ever say why she went to Juarez? Not that I know of. But they said that she was disabled. Okay. That's a rough area. I've been to El Paso, and uh, I've been over near that area of Juarez. That's rough. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Nope, you're good. Yeah, she never said anything about, you know, why she was there or how she got there. Not that I saw. But now here comes another thing. So we heard Wendy's side of the story. But there was another sister that was there that night, Sadie. Now, her father, Larry, I guess he did a interview with the newspaper and he told Sadie's side of the story, it seemed. Sadie and Antoinette heard someone knock at the door that night. They didn't recognize or respond to the man outside whoever it was, and they both went back to bed. Then Larry said that Antoinette wouldn't have opened the door for someone she didn't know, but her parents believed that she did open the door for someone that night. Why, we don't know. From what Sadie said, after the first person left that was knocking, someone else for the second time came knocking on the door. Antoinette got up, but Sadie did not this time. Sadie didn't recognize the first person knocking, but she never even got a look at the second person when Antoinette opened the door. Then uh, one of the neighbors came forward and said that they saw a brown truck, not a van, parked in front of their house that morning at 7 a.m., well, 6.30 to 7 a.m., and a man going to the front door and knocking. The neighbor couldn't describe the truck other than it was brown, had New Mexico plates on it, and they couldn't describe anything about the man that went to the door, which this led me to a statement that a neighbor said before was, it wasn't unusual for Penny to have people visiting at all hours of the night. So they probably didn't even think anything of it, like, oh, you know, Penny's just having someone else come over early in the morning this time. So they didn't pay any mind, not knowing that whoever this was might have kidnapped Antoinette. So there's two different stories now. One was a brown van and two people kidnapping, and now it's one man in a brown truck. So we know for fact Antoinette's missing. She's missing, yes. That she got taken. Well, we don't know for a fact if she got taken, but there's a brown vehicle. Brown vehicle involved. And more than likely, she made a phone call from Albuquerque. If that was her. But that's what Penny said. It was like, oh, that's definitely her voice. Hmm. Now, there's only one more thing that I found weird about this, which also I do have that uh, newspaper article, which I'll post up so people can look at it on the, on the website under references for the episode. But uh, 
the last strange thing that I found was that their house had a screen door and a, like a front door. They both lock. So even opening the front door, the screen door would still be locked. This is where it makes everyone question Wendy's side of the story, is that as soon as Antoinette opened up the first door, the two men grabbed her and took her. That would mean that either the screen door wasn't locked or they had a key or something. But they said that the screen door was always locked when they went to bed. Man, it's so weird. I'd be curious to see how the sisters currently feel about one another and how they feel about their sister that's missing and how they feel about their mother. So I could tell you after Antoinette went missing, Wendy and Penny, they ended up getting on drugs and drinking a lot. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. How old were they? Are you talking like nine, ten years old, like banging heroin? I'm thinking this was like a couple years later. Oh, okay. A few years later. They, uh, Wendy ended up going to rehab and getting clean, and she uh, actually lives in California now with her family, her own little family, and supposedly doing well and everything. And when they asked her about, like, you know, Antoinette, she's like pretty much like frozen in time for her at nine years old, because at the time she was five. So that's all she really remembers of Antoinette. So it's not like haunting her, I don't think, but it's just, you know, all she remembers is just Antoinette being nine years old at the time. And then the other sister, like after all that happened, she went with her father, Larry, and she kind of became like estranged to the other part of the family. Didn't have like really much of a connection and didn't really talk to them too much. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like she kind of knew something was up. Maybe didn't want to be around them anymore. Yep. So what do you think happened? I hate to say it. I think the mother sold her. Jesus. You think Wendy covered for the mother? I don't think Wendy knew what was going on. You know, she was five at the time. And I think she was just influenced by her mom being, you know, as depressed as she was actually having it happen. I guess at the time she didn't really care, but later on it affected her mother to where she started drinking and doing drugs. And since Wendy was there, she ended up doing the same thing. And then the mother kind of like implanted these thoughts and memories into her daughter's head, which is why five years later she, quote unquote, magically had these, you know, things that she had to tell that she's been keeping back. Probably. To kind of help cover her mother's tracks, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, because, I mean, two men kidnapping, like, she saw it, but then she didn't say anything. I'm pretty sure, I want to say a five-year-old seeing something like that, they'd probably cry because something violent going on. Yeah, and they wouldn't want to stay there at the house anymore. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I honestly believe it because, like, they weren't rich. They didn't have a lot of money. I mean, they were considered poor. So how did she end up buying a brand new sports car? How was she able to go out and drink and party all the time? That's a good question. But it's overall, it's a sad story. It is. Antoinette, if you're out there, send us an email to Aaronette Theory. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't mean to make a joke of this, but if you are, send us an email, Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com, or you can send it to Dan at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. I mean, how old would she be right now? Uh, let's see. Yeah, she'd be, uh, she'd be 46 right, right now. Here's what they, uh, here's like the missing person picture, which I'll put that in the document as well. It has a picture of her when she was kidnapped and then. An updated picture? A picture of what they said that she would look like. Okay. 
yeah, we'll post that up to our site. If you want to take a look at it, just go to theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You can click on the little drop-down menu, which is in the upper right, the three little dashes. When you click on that, you click on References, and then you scroll all the way to the bottom. There will be the image along with all of the links for today's episode. So yeah, very uh, sad but interesting topic. And wouldn't it be amazing if we were able to solve this case that she came forward and said, that was me who was taken? That would be. I mean, it would probably bring her siblings and her father some, uh, I don't know what's the word. Closure. Yeah, closure. Mm, Damn. Actually, no, her father passed away not too long after the mother did. So just her siblings. Welp, thank you for that topic today, Dan. Yeah, it's a little depressing, but, you know, it's always good to bring up these, you know, types of topics to help put awareness out there. Yep, 100%. Well, I guess we move on to my topic for this week. Yeah. And it doesn't get any better, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a very uplifting topic that I have. Now, before we get into that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. All right. Welcome back. My topic this week is about murder. It's about corruption. It's about abuse of power and a giant cover-up at the highest of levels. And no one is talking about it. Well, I say no one, but there's like one or two people who's connected to it that are talking about it. But if you go to YouTube and you search this individual's name on YouTube, there is only one video from this person that shows up and it's the actual person himself, and then there's three or four other videos of, like, recordings of a person investigating the case. Besides that, there's nothing else on YouTube about it. I've never seen anything like this before in my life when researching something. So I said, I got to cover this topic this week. So this entire thing revolves around an individual named Sonny Shihu, or Shu. I'm not 100% sure how you pronounce his last name. It's S-H-E-U. So I'm just going to go with Shu. So, have you ever heard of this individual before, Dan? I have not. Well, buckle in, because this is a wild ride. So, Sonny was born in Taiwan in 1969, and he eventually moved to the United States, where he decided to live in New York. So, there in New York, Sonny worked as a software engineer, and on the side, he was creating a social media network site for Chinese-speaking people. Sonny eventually purchased a house in Queens, New York, and then in the year 2000, he ended up refinancing his house in his brother's name. Now, this is important, and it's not like him and his brother were in bad terms. He trusted his brother and was like, hey, I need to refinance my home, and he was like, well, you could do it underneath my name. Lower interest rate, you're good to go, and he's like, all right, sweet, so that's what he did. 
and everything was going good for Sonny. He was living the American dream. However, only a year later is when this dream would start to become a nightmare. So it was 2001. Sonny was just chilling at his home, working on some computer software, and he heard a knock on his front door. Knock, knock, knock. He walked up to his front door, and he opened it up, and standing there was an individual. Sonny was like, hey, how can I help you? This individual said, hey, I'm a representative for the bank, and I'm here to inspect this house for its new owner. Sonny kind of looked at him and was like, uh, I think you have the wrong house, because I've, I've never sold this. I just refinanced it a year ago underneath my brother's name, and I own it. The bank uh, representative kind of took a step back, looked through his paperwork again, and he's like, nope, this is the house. This is the correct one, and he showed Sonny the paperwork. So Sonny grabbed the paperwork and started looking through it, and he saw something very odd. On that paperwork, someone had forged his brother's signature on a power of attorney document and used that forged power of attorney document to illegally sell Sonny's house to another buyer. So Sonny was like, what the hell? This is fake, and kind of like explained that to the bank representative. And the bank guy was like, okay, I'm going to go back to my office. I'll let the people take care of it. You call the police or whatever. Sonny was like, all right. So the bank rep ended up leaving, and Sonny called the police and the bank that held his mortgage, which was Syntec Home Equity. And he said that the sale of his home was fraudulent. The mortgage people were like, oh, okay, you know, just give us the documents and prove that it was a forged signature, and we'll take care of it. And the police pretty much told him the same thing. They said, hey, give us something that proves that your brother didn't sign this power of attorney. So Sonny called up his brother and was like, hey, this is what happened. I need you to prove to the police that you didn't sign these papers. So Sonny's brother was like, of course I didn't sign them. Look at the dates on them. During that day of the signature, I was in Taiwan. So Sonny was like, sweet. I have the proof that they're forged signatures. So he gathered up the evidence, took it to the police, and a little while later, the individuals involved in this forgery were arrested by the NYPD. Now, the individual that was arrested was actually the person that was trying to purchase the home. He's the one who actually got the forged documents. It was a guy and a girl, got the forged documents, went to the mortgage company, told them that he wanted to purchase the home, that he had a power of attorney over it, and the mortgage company did the process and all the paperwork and got him a mortgage and all that. So the police ended up arresting those people. And I mean, that all seems good, right? Bad guys were caught. Sonny gets to keep his home. Good to go, right? Yeah, sounds like an open closed case. Well, not so fast. So after the dust had settled from that, Sonny continued to make the mortgage payments. And this is, this is the weird part. I mean, there's a lot of weird parts, but this is the very first weird part. Every time Sonny would write a check for his mortgage payment and send it to his mortgage company, they would send the check back to him. The mortgage company was acting as if that fraudulent sale was actually a real one. And the mortgage company was pretty much saying, hey, you aren't the owner, Sonny. This new person is. And Sonny was like, that's a fake sale. Those people were arrested. And he even showed them the paperwork and everything and said, look at the court documents that show the people got arrested for this. They're in prison for it. This was a fraudulent sale. Mortgage company was like, we don't give a shit. You're not the owner anymore. We aren't taking payments from you. Which Sonny was kind of like flabbergasted, but he continued just sending his payments and the mortgage company continued sending them back to him. So he just put them away. So a few months later, in December of 2001, the mortgage company filed a lawsuit in the state Supreme Court 
against Sonny and the fake owners who tried to scam Sonny. So what this mortgage company wanted was Sonny's home. This mortgage company stated that the new owners, aka scammers, were delinquent on the mortgage payments, when in reality, there were never any new owners in the first place. Sonny was the owner, and he had been making his payments every month, but they kept sending it back to him. So the day of the court case finally came, and the judge over it was Judge Golia in Queens, New York. Now, whenever this court case was announced and the date of it was announced, Sonny immediately filed a order to show cause. Now, what this does is it kind of like puts a halt on the lawsuit just for a little while. And it makes it so that the person that's getting sued or the, the person that's getting taken to court has some extra days to gather evidence. So Sonny filed that order to show cause and he told Judge Colia, I need time so I can get the detectives who arrested the two people that forged the signature on the mortgage so that those detectives can testify on the record and say that this is a fraudulent sale, which it seems reasonable, right? That's an open and closed case right there for you. Well, Judge Galea denied the motion and ignored the documented evidence that showed that the sale had been fraudulent in the first place. The judge never even allowed Sonny to introduce any records at all and actually drug the case out for years. All right, so we're going to fast forward to January of 2005. Sonny's house was eventually foreclosed on. And get this, the mortgage company ended up going and buying Sonny's home from Amy Ching for $1,000. Now, who is Amy Ching? She's one of the people that forged the fake document to purchase the house and was arrested for it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they still recognized her and that guy as the new owners. The hell? So, of course, Sonny got kicked out of his house, and he wasn't too happy. And uh, he started writing letters to judges in the area explaining his situation. Eventually, word of that got back around to Judge Galea, and he called Sonny in to talk to him. He told Sonny, he said, hey, I'm going to reverse the foreclosure, okay? And Sonny was like, great, I get to have my home back. But the judge was like, no, 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 I'm not going to restore the ownership of the property to you. Sonny was like, what the hell are you talking about? And Judge Galea said, even though your home was illegally sold years earlier, I recognize that. The mortgage company already paid it off, and they own that property, so you ain't getting it back. Oh, I would have been so pissed. It gets worse, too, okay? It gets worse. So after that, Sonny continued to file various motions. However, Judge Galea ignored and pretty much dismissed all of the motions. So in one final attempt, Sonny decided to write a handwritten letter to Judge Galea and deliver it to his mailbox outside of his home. Now, this letter said, and Dan, do you want to read it for us? Now, keep in mind when you read this, this guy's English isn't that great, so it's kind of broken a little bit. Oh, sounds like my mom's. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'm going to paste it on here, so if you could read that for us, that'd be great. All right, before we get into that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. It's over eight years. I have been prohibited to have any most basic due process to discovery 
to deposition, to subpoena, to counterclaim, to cross-claim again and again, and our third-party summon has been ignored, too. After contacted NYPD Commissioner Mr. Raymond W. Kelly, and he agreed that Detective Keith and Detective Ken, who investigated the crime, should testify to you about the bank's officer's violated law and the bank's closing lawyer internationally accepted fake deposit of residential contract of sales, fake money order, fake check, falsified bank records to endorse the fraudulent mortgage, and got some money for himself. Would you mind to schedule a hearing as soon as possible? So that's what the letter said, which after eight years of going through all that shit and everything the judge has done to him, you figure that the letter would have been more colorful with expressions. However, it was not. It was pretty much straight to the point and reasonable. Yeah. So following that, Sonny didn't hear back from the judge at all. And at this point, Sonny kind of got suspicious. He started to think that maybe the judge had a hand in this mortgage company, or maybe something else was like going on behind the scenes where the judge was getting kickbacks or something. So Sonny decided to start personally investigating the financial assets of this judge. Now, just a quick knowledge nugget real quick. If you didn't know this, all public officials have to file personal financial documents. And these personal financial documents are free for anyone to view, which kind of allows them to not be accused of doing things behind the scene, right, and getting kickbacks. So Sonny decided to file a request for these public documents from the New York Office of Court Administration Ethics Commission. Now, after getting these documents, Sonny started to look into them, and guess what? He found a ton of discrepancies between the judge's actual properties and the ones that he declared on his public financial disclosure forms. So pretty much, the judge had some properties that he wasn't disclosing to the public, such as a million-dollar beach house in Long Island and a lot of other things. So Sonny saw that, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to let the director of the Ethics Commission know of these discrepancies. So he told the director, and the director ended up contacting Judge Galea and said, hey, you need to submit a form to clarify any issues with your original form. Basically saying to the judge, hey, you need to come clean about any errors, and if you don't, you could be investigated and possibly charged with a felony. Now, this is where things get weird. So a few days later, Sonny received a phone call from two NYPD detectives who told him, hey, we want to talk to you about your mortgage fraud case. Sonny was like, oh, finally, I got somebody who wants to talk to me about it. We can get this taken care of. So Sonny ended up going to Queens, New York Supreme Courthouse. And he went to the lobby, he sat down on the bench, and he waited for the two New York Police Department detectives. A little while later, the detectives showed up, they looked at Sonny, they showed him their guns and badges, and told him to follow them. Sonny was like, eh, it's a little weird that they showed me their guns and badges, but okay, I'm going to follow them. They took Sonny outside and threw his ass into the back seat of an unmarked car and then drove him to the district attorney's office. So the detectives took Sonny through the back door of the district attorney's office and set him down in a room. There in that room, the detectives had Sonny empty his pockets and then photocopied all of his documents that he had taken there with him. So all of the documents that Sonny had on him were all of the ones about the mortgage case, along with all of the information he had about Judge Galea. So he had everything on him. 
and the detectives went and photocopied all of that. So after that, the detectives came back into the room, they set the documents back down, and then they started pretty much yelling at Sonny, saying, hey, you're harassing Judge Galea. The house that you're fighting for doesn't belong to you. And then the detectives told Sonny that if he went to the press or the authorities, that it wouldn't be good because he lives in a dangerous neighborhood with gangs and anything could happen to him. And then they said, you're free to go. So they pretty much intimidated him. So even though the detectives told Sonny not to contact anybody, he did anyways. He contacted the press. He even contacted the FBI and told them what was going on. So the FBI assigned a agent from the New York Bureau to the case. This agent then notified Sonny, hey, I've been assigned to your case and I'm monitoring it and this is how you can get a hold of me. Following that, Sonny emailed that agent and said, hey, I'm just letting you know, just reminding you that I have threats against my life from the NYPD detectives and a judge. At this point, I just want to be placed into witness protection. And you know what the FBI agent said? She responded to his email and wrote, Thanks, Sonny. Be careful. That's it. Are you serious? <laughs> Dead serious. Dead serious. And all this is documented, too. So it's not like this is all bullshit. This is all documented. All right? So after that response, Sonny was like, I think I'm going to get killed. So he decided to create a two-minute long video and post it on YouTube. Now, in this video, Sonny describes everything that has happened to him over the past few years. And then at the end of it, he said, hey, if I die, it's because of Judge Golia and the New York PD detectives. They're going to kill me. Now, I want you to keep this video in the back of your mind because we'll come back to it here in a minute and we're actually going to listen to it. I just kind of want to jump forward to a few other things before we go to the video itself. All right, so after Sonny made the video, the Ethics Commission called him up and said, hey, we actually have the amended financial form of Judge Galea. He submitted his new financials. Do you want to come take a look at it? Sonny was like, yeah, I'll come take a look at it. So he picked his friend up who was kind of like familiar with the law and stuff. And him and his friend went up there to the OCA Ethics Commission, and Sonny was handed the amended form. And upon looking at it, Sonny quickly realized that the judge, Galea, neglected to mention his beach house, as well as a lot of other undeclared properties. It was at this moment that Sonny said out loud, now I've got some evidence to put Galea in jail. Now, when he said this out loud, all of the Ethics Commission people were around. And when he said it, Sonny's friend grabbed Sonny by the arm and took him outside and said, hey, you can't say that shit out loud. All of the people that just heard you are friends with that judge. You can't be saying that shit out loud, man. But Sonny at that point was like, I don't give a shit. Look at everything he's done to me. So Sonny's like, I got it in the bag. I got some shit against the judge. I can get him off my case and get a new judge because that's pretty much the entire thing was that he wanted the Judge Galea recused from his case so he could get a new judge. But the Judge Galea was denying that. He wasn't allowing it. All right, fast forward three days later, on Saturday, June 26, 2010, that same friend that went with Sonny to get that form from the Ethics Commission, he ended up getting a phone call. And when he picked up his cell phone, he seen that it was from Sonny. He answers the phone. 
but it wasn't Sonny. It was Officer Ramos of the NYPD. This officer then tells Sonny's friend, hey, there is a man here. I'm pretty sure it's Sonny. We found him in the middle of a street at a dead end, and he's in a coma, and he has severe head trauma, and he's headed to the New York Hospital of Queens. You should probably tell any one of his family members or somebody and get up here to the hospital as soon as you can. So Sonny's friend was like, holy shit, hangs up the phone and heads up to the hospital. Now, when he gets to the hospital, he finds out that Sonny actually had already died. He already passed away. And the weird thing about this is, is that the initial report stated that Sonny had multiple injuries, including severe head trauma. However, the New York medical examiner stated that Sonny's death was natural and from a brain aneurysm. And not only that, the New York Police Department assigned a detective to look over the case of Sonny dying. And after the medical examiner made that announcement about the brain aneurysm, the detective that was assigned to the case stated the following. The case is closed. There was no head injury. Sonny died from natural causes. It was a brain aneurysm. And that was that. Case closed. And there are some strange facts and findings that just add even more strangeness to this. So get this. Two years after Sonny died, this Judge Galea retired as a judge and took a job at a random law firm called Fins and Fins in New York. I mean, that kind of seems normal, right? Judge retiring and just kind of taking like a random law firm job, right? A little easy like Home Depot type thing. But here's the weird thing. That Fins and Fin law firm represents the hospital where Sonny had died at. Hmm. So my next strange fact and finding is about the detectives that threatened Sonny. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, that didn't happen. There's no proof that the detectives actually took Sonny back and threatened him. That's not true because a spokesperson for the Queens District Attorney's Office actually confirmed that Sonny had indeed been detained by two NYPD detectives and was questioned about some stuff. But that spokesperson said that they wouldn't go into detail about what was said. That's all they stated about that. And my last strange fact and finding is about that video that I mentioned earlier. You know, the one that Sonny had made and posted on YouTube about him pretty much predicting his own death. Oh, yeah. Well, I have that video, and it's about a minute and 49 seconds long. And we're going to take a listen to that right now. Recording. Okay. Hi, my name is Sunny Xu. Uh, I have I have filed uh, a complaint to the FBI and the New York State uh, Unified Court EC Committee about the Judge Joseph Gloria falsified uh, his financial disclosure statement. And uh, I have submitted evidence to the FBI. Uh, recently, FBI returned me a copy of the uh, evidence that I sent to the uh, FBI. And today, uh, April 9th, uh, Unified Court, Unified Court, uh, EC Committee Director Janice Hover, she told me Judge Joseph Gloria already amend his uh, financial disclosure statement. It means uh, my evidence is true, at least uh, he was supposed to amend. Uh, he misrepresentation on his financial disclosure statement. 
and uh, for the security issue, for the security concern, I make this recording. And uh, if anything wrong goes to me, it should be come from George Gloria and his people because before I have been kidnapping, kidnapping by his people, right. by his and threatened and intimidated by his people, not uh, while I complain against uh, George Gloria. So I make this I make this recording for the safety, for the protection. If anything wrong, please goes to the George Gloria and his people. So that was a video he made before he passed away. Hmm. Kind of hard to understand, but it's messed up, man. And I think that plays a part in it too, though. He doesn't have perfect English. It's broken English. People that speak broken English like that are more easy to get over on. Yeah. Because a lot of times when they start talking, it doesn't make sense. I, I know firsthand because of my mom. I've gone to her multiple places with her and people don't understand her. And they will just, the last place I didn't understand her ended up actually laughing at her. It was actually a doctor's office and I don't get mad very easily. But I can tell you this, that the clerk behind the table, I told him to come outside and we'll see who uh, has the last laugh. Like, cause I me, mean, my mom speaks broken English and it, when people don't understand her and then they just start mocking her and then they just start laughing then. That's so messed up because your mom is such a sweet lady. Yeah, and, and that's what happens when people don't speak perfect English. It's broken English. They get mocked and then they're easy to take advantage of. And honestly, I think that's why they targeted him for one is that he was not because he was Asian, but because he didn't speak perfect English. They could take advantage of him. He would have a hard time trying to explain his case to anybody. Yep. But that's pretty much my topic for today. I mean, it's pretty much it. There's not much information about it at all. So nobody got in trouble for it at all? Nope. Nobody got in trouble for it. That's upsetting. It is. Very upsetting. But I just wanted to present that, you know, one of the most unheard cases of corruption and cover-up. So there you go. Definitely a cover-up. Yep. So those are both of our topics for the week. I do have a quick off-topic discussion that I wanted to talk about real quick, if that's all right. Yeah. I have a little uh, Jeffrey Epstein update. Ooh, is it about uh, Ghislaine Maxwell? And it's about some um, evidence whenever the Maxwell trial was going on. So I was looking over some court records from the Maxwell case, and in some of those uh, court records... Did you know that uh, it stated that there was a trove of lewd photographs of children that was found in a safe at Jeffrey Epstein's property? And then the court papers also said that alongside those photos were CDs with handwritten labels, including young, quote unquote, names would be a young name of a woman plus a name. Then there was others that said miscellaneous nudes one. And then there was another one that said, girl picks nude. And I think we've mentioned this before, right? Yes. Now, something we didn't mention is what this court record said is that the FBI actually photographed the items, but they didn't take them with them. What they do with them then? They don't know. The FBI got a search warrant, went back, and they stated the items weren't there. It's like, how do you mess up that bad? I mean... That's like pretending to be asleep while some inmates hanging themselves in a suicide watch area with no cameras. Which I also heard that uh, Maxwell, even though she was charged with whatever she was charged with, I don't remember exactly what, that they actually just cut off 10 months of her, uh, whatchamacallit? Sentencing? Yeah, of her sentencing. 
They cut off 10 months for some reason. How long was she sentenced for to begin with? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I kind of stopped paying attention to it. So she looks like sentenced to 40 years. So they No, she says she, they haven't sentenced her yet. They still got to do that. But she could face up to 40 to 50 years in jail for the five charges related to recruiting and trafficking underage girls. So she got charged and convicted uh, in December of 2021 on five of the six counts of sex trafficking girls for Jeffrey Epstein to abuse, but she hasn't been sentenced yet. Okay, so they've, they've pretty much, whatever happened, they cut off 10 months off of that already. Hmm, okay. Well, it's going to happen. They're, she's going to get let go because all the other shit going on, no one's paying attention. Yep, that's true. All right, well, that is the end of our Theories Thursday episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Now we are going to transition to our On the Scene. Now, if you aren't familiar with what our On the Scene is, it is where an individual around the world, could be you, yes, you, even the listener can do this, they go around and they ask various individuals certain questions about conspiracies and other odd things that are going on around the world, and they kind of like question them and do like an interview. The person then submits that interview to us via our email, and uh, we play it at the end of the show each week. Now, like I said, anyone can do this. Just make sure that the audio is less than two minutes long and make sure that the audio quality is decent. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just make sure that there's not like a train in the background or anything, you know? And uh, like I said, make sure the audio is less than two minutes long and then send it to either mine or Dan's email, which is Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com or you can send it to Dan at theoriesofthethirdkind.com and uh, we'll put it in the queue. Now we have a list of on the scenes that we're just kind of going down. And when we receive one, we stick it at the bottom of the list and then it eventually works its way up. However, don't be discouraged. Go ahead and do it and submit it now. So yours will eventually make it to the top quicker. All right, so this week's on the scene is from an individual named Kaizukuni. And we're going to play that right now. Yo, 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 it's Kaisakuni the Rex Mundi, reporting live to theories of the third kind, transmitted through my pineal gland and third eye. No, actually, I'm at work right now, sticking it to the man. Just want to say, I love the show. Just join the Patreon after listening to all the episodes on Spotify. Feed me theories or feed me beats. I love the Bohemian Grove episode and wanted to know if during your research, did you ever come across the song by rapper Absol? Bohemian Grove. The song itself doesn't have much to do with the actual theory, but there is one line in the hook where he says, harder than sneaking a woman in Bohemian Grove, which of course is alluding to the strict rule of no women allowed at Bohemian Grove. There is a video of Absol explaining this lyric and discussing the mysterious all-men retreat, which you can find on Rap Genius. Later in the song, though, he also says, mother f the government and mother f the system which is always a good statement to stand behind. Finally, the outro for the song is a reading of a transcript where Edward Mandela House is speaking to President Woodrow Wilson during a private meeting, which basically goes on to say that the American government will soon take control of the country by way of legislation and ultimately enslave the people. If you haven't heard it before, I think y'all should check it out. The song's outro is pretty interesting to me. Maybe a new theory to discuss about how the government uses law and legislation to keep tabs on the American people. But I think that's my time. Love you guys. Have a great day.
I like it. He just upped the quality of our on the scene. And Kaiza Cooney is now the world heavyweight champion of our on the scene. So if you think you can outdo him, give it a go. Give it a try. I love it. Thank you for that, Kaiza Cooney. Number one. So let's take a look at this Ab Soul artist in the Bohemian Grove song. So yeah, on the very first verse of it, it says, Mother F the government, Mother F the system. But there's something else that Kaiza Cooney left out. It's the very next line, Mother F you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. Yep. Says, got me harder than sneaking a bitch in Bohemian Grove. And it's pretty much like the only kind of theory type stuff mentioned in the song. I mean, the rest is just like, let the festivals begin, where them hoes at, belly of the beast, I might feast on my deer, night ride like Paul Revere, if she pop a perk and give me, okay. All right. Um, let's look at the outro. Holy shit, that's a long outro. Very soon, every American will be required to register their biological property in a national system designed to keep track of the people and that will operate under the ancient system of pledging. By such methodology, we can compel people to submit to our agenda, which will affect our security as a chargeback for a fiat paper currency. Every American will be forced to register or suffer from being unable to work and earn a living. Damn it, it goes on forever about pretty much... Americans being slaves to tax and the government and all that stuff and debt. Hmm. Damn. Okay, well, that's a very interesting outro. Of course, we can't play that because, you know, a copyright strike placed on us. But uh, I appreciate that, Kaiser Cooney, and uh, submit another one. I want to hear from you again. I love it. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to transition to shout-outs. Dan, who do you got for this week? All right. So from Facebook, I got Dylan G, Destiny W, Fernando M.A., Jake Jake, E-Rock, Jeffrey Fisher, who says, Aaron, you have a sexy voice, Roberto Miguel Francis G, J.S., Heather B., Bill D.A., Anthony J.S., and shout out to Bakery Man at the Bakery Shop. Then from email... Deidre M and Amir H. Then shout out to Jake Barlow from Wales. Then Discord shout out to It's the Boys. And then I got two birthday shout outs. All right, we'll save those birthday shout outs to the end. All right. All right, so I got a few shout outs. I want to shout out Raymond and Ariel. I think that's how you pronounce it A R E L Y Colin. Nina. Sent me a message on Instagram and said, Hey, send a shout out to my brother and sister in law, Raymond and Ariely. Ari- Ari- I don't know how you pronounce your name. I'm sorry, but your sister in law, Nina, said, What up? Let's see. Got a message from Lucas. Said, Hey, Aaron, me and my buddies are great friends and fans of your show. I hate calling people fans. I just call them listeners. I hate the word fans. Same. Yeah, it's like, hey, can we get a shout-out to the Oppenheimer crew and especially to Lucas Pavel from Toronto? Cheers to the streets of Norway. Lucas, Lucas, Tim, and Victor. Hey, shout-out to all you. Love y'all. Shout-out to Carter Peterson. Shout-out to Dolph Vix. Shout-out to... Hold on. See, we did all of these shout-outs last week, but the audio was all jacked up, so I'm trying to figure out who I gave shout-outs to and who I didn't give shout-outs to which is very difficult. 
Yeah, I, I had a list and I add I think it was the right list, so I added I just added to the list. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I if you want a shout out, send me another message or you can send me an email and I'll give you a shout out. I just got a lot of these messages I'm going through and I don't know who I did and who I didn't do. So I guess we move to birthday shout outs. So the first birthday shout out is gonna go to Anexi. Anexi, A-N-N-E-X-Y, Anexi. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. Sorry if I pronounce your name wrong. Anexi Hernandez. She said, hey, my birthday's on the 15th of May. Can you guys give me a birthday shout out? Well, hey, you're in luck because Dan is going to sing you happy birthday. Take it away, Dan. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Nice. Love you. I'm proud of you. All right. uh, This next birthday shout out is to Saul Martinez. Say, hey, my birthday's on May 10th. Can I get a shout out? Happy birthday, Saul. You're in luck because Dan's going to sing it to you right now. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Proud of you. I love you. Uh, Shout out to Alex Gallo. Gayo? Gallo? I don't know. The dude's from South Africa, okay? Sorry I pronounced your name wrong if I did. But his birthday is on May 19th, which is the day this episode's coming out. So, shout out to you. I love you. And Dan's going to sing you happy birthday right now. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday. All right, I think that's it for my birthday shout-outs. What other birthday shout-outs do you have, Dan? All right, so first birthday shout-out goes to, it's really Katarina off of Instagram. Her birthday is uh, May 21st, and Aaron said he's going to sing happy birthday. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I did. Listen to this. Look at that photograph. <laughs> Every time I hear it, look at your birthday. Hey, I just want to say happy birthday. I'm proud of you, and I love you. Nice. And then the next one is Allie Cat. Her birthday was on the 15th. She was turning the, the dirty 30. Ooh. And she actually requested for Aaron to sing her happy birthday. Oh, okay. That was All a right. request. Yeah. Allie Cat. Here we go. <clears throat> <clears throat> meow, 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 meow. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Oh, God. I almost mix? passed out. <laughs> almost got passed out. Oh, my God. Woo. I did that little meow remix for you of happy birthday. I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, stay safe out there for your dirty 30. It gets crazy. And guess what? It only is downhill from here. Because when you start waking up after 30, your bones start aching, your muscles start aching, and life pretty much starts sucking. So congratulations. Happy birthday. Damn, Aaron. Way to make it depressing. Sorry. We already know this, but come on. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm just three years into my 30s, and I I wake up every day, and I'm like, oh, my body. Oh, I'm three years into it now. Oh, don't even make me think about it. Then uh, last birthday shout out goes to Lissa. Her birthday is on May 23rd. So happy birthday. And Aaron, again, so nice of you to sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. There you go. That's all you getting. Nice. (laughs) And that is it. All right. Well, happy birthday to everyone. If we missed you, sorry. If we missed a shout-out, I'm sorry. Send an email to us in the subject line. Put shout-out, and we will not miss you, okay? That's right. It's been a crazy past couple weeks, especially with uh, last week's regular episode just kind of like messing up. That, you know? that threw us off, for sure. It did throw us off big time. 
All right. Um, let's see. Anything you want to talk about before we roll this episode out? Uh, no, it's been pretty quiet for me. Okay. I do have something that I want to talk about. Let us hear it. Let us hear it. This past weekend, I went to the movies and I saw the movie, the, is it Northman or the Northman? I don't even know what the hell it's called. The Northman? The Northman. Thought it was men. Thought it was plural because there's a lot of them. Anyway, it was a pretty good movie. In my personal opinion, it was way too long. There was some weird parts in it, like why is the mom and the son making out? It's really weird. I don't want to see that. But besides that, good movie. The only thing is, though, I couldn't understand a fucking thing they were saying. Everybody has that weird-ass Norwegian accent, that weird-ass accent. I was like, what, what the hell are they saying? I couldn't understand a goddamn thing. So the entire plot of the movie was kind of screwed up for me. If, uh, if you watch it, my suggestion would be watch it with the uh, captions on. They didn't have subtitles on in the theater? No. Uh-uh. Really? Yeah. What the hell? And these guys had, like, heavy, heavy accents, too. Some of the times I was like, are they even speaking English? Anyways, that's the only thing I wanted to talk about. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone.